Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I, I think what Mike and I are going to focus on today is geopolitical risk. In the oil and gas business, risk for consumers is, is generally more cash flow for the oil and gas producer. So uh, all that's coming right along. I think it's the case that the new way to address the business uh, in the U.S. for sure, and I think probably on a worldwide basis, that would be debt less than one year of cash flow. And cash flow, cash flow less your CapEx, not just your cash flow before CapEx. And the reason for doing that is you can run without any hedges. As we've seen before Ukraine, a saw really last year, an oil and gas producer with no hedges gets some terrific opportunity when there's more volatility. And I think as the world moves, uh, companies, governments, what have you, trying to be zero carbon em- emissions, just going to create more volatility. And uh, the right, if you if you have a fair amount of leverage and you hedge, you lose that volatility. In fact, you can find yourself if you have extreme volatility, like what we've had, having to not enough money to settle your position. There is a Chinese company, privately owned company. It is the largest steel producer in China who didn't have enough capital to settle a short position they had on a nickel. The London Metal Exchange hasn't been able to trade nickel for a couple of days. They're trying to sort out the situation. And uh, Peabody, a, a U.S. thermal coal company, had to do a financing to buy in or to pay off a hedge that they had done in the in the coal market. So hedging looks like you're trying to smooth out your pricing and smooth out your revenue. But when you get this kind of volatility, it can become a problem itself. The oil situation uh, is obviously a lot more backwardation. In other words, you have West Texas Intermediate 120 or something, and out 18 months, the price of oil is like $80. So that that will continue. I think the way to understand backwardation and the reason why a current barrel is worth so much more than a barrel one year from now or two years from now is to contemplate a, let's let's just take a refinery in Rotterdam. Let's not worry about whether it's a shell refinery or a total refinery or whatnot. It has been running the Russian crude, which is most of the Russian crude is marketed as a Euro's blend, and you can't run it anymore. So you, a refinery, you have a certain amount of storage. Generally, it's not enough to run a refinery for more than several days. And you can't land the Russian, you know, the Dutch government or your corporate stance, what have you, won't allow you.
almost anything for a cargo of crude from some other source, from the U.S. exports. The U.S. does export about 3 million barrels a day. Might be a barrel of oil, you know, a cargo of oil from Nigeria, from Libya, just something that isn't Russian. So that is how the price of oil gets to be so high to prompt us rather than, you know, as compared to a barrel of oil, you know, in a year's time. Russians, as of the beginning of the week, uh, have their own state-owned shipping company, which has 170 Aframax ships. Uh, Aframaxes carry about 600,000 barrels of oil. A VLCC, very large VLCC, will, will carry 2 million barrels. A Suez Max ship, uh, largest ship you can bring through the Suez Canal, will carry about a million barrels. So 600,000 barrels is, you know, or medium-sized, small to medium-sized tanker. It's perfect for picking oil up in the Baltic and uh, in the Black Sea and bringing it to European refiners. Some of those, as you can see from the publicity, some of those Aframaxes have been coming to the U.S. Uh, that's not going to happen anymore. State-owned shipping company has 170 of these Aframax ships, and 100, as of the beginning of this week, were on the water with oil on them, with mostly without a port to bring the oil to. <clears throat> the U.K. has already moved to a stance where they want to phase out rush, the use of Russian oil by the end of the year. So what that means, I think, is that the companies and the government in the UK have seen that it's not feasible to find those other cargoes. So they're going to be able to take those Aframaxes in, unload them, and run the Russian crew with a commitment to <clears throat> to not take any new cargo, you know, so that so they'll have to find additional barrels. <clears throat> run those refineries, you know, as the year goes on, which will alleviate some of the kind of panic conditions that have been a lot of the volatility in the oil market. Don't know how the war is going to go, whether there'll be a ceasefire or what, whatever's going to happen, but this changes the oil market for the next two, three, four years because Russia the three largest producers in the world were Saudi Arabia in order. The U.S. produces more in Saudi Arabia at 11.8 million barrels, and Saudi Arabia around nine and a half or 10, and then Russia around 10. <clears throat> there are various studies that have been done. How much of the 10 can be rerouted to go to China or, or you know, someplace where the oil can be run and the consensus forecast I've seen is that around 4 million barrels will be the amount. In other words, when we get, when we look at second half 20 production from Russia, rather than being 10 million barrels, it'll be six. It'll be enough dislocation. So the Russians will have no choice but to they have a certain amount of storage in their port, and they have one pipe that goes to China. They have another pipe that comes into Europe, but more than half of their production be shipped. They'll have no choice but to start curtailing production. And when you curtail production from fairly mature oil fields, I mean, the Russian oil fields, for the most part, are pretty mature. It's hard to bring it back. So 
in the world make up 4 million barrels? Well, Saudi Arabia has two, and the Emirates probably have one or one and a half. Uh, Iran, if, if a deal is made to remove some of the sanctions, can do another million barrels. There'll be some demand destruction from the high prices. You know, you're probably, you're probably seeing now kind of the highest pump oil prices. I, I don't be surprised. People say, oh, $200 is there. Vladimir Putin said if, if the sanctions aren't modified, $300 is going to be there. I, I just don't think, I think the industry has enough flexibility and alternatives and whatnot, so the price is probably not going to get a whole heck of a lot higher than it is now. But I would have guessed, predicted, more of a guess than a prediction, that oil would have hung in at around Sixty or sixty-five dollars average for the next five years. I think, given the disruption that we've seen, the, the fact that you know Russia is, you know, everyone's going to sanction Russia and continue to sanction that, even if Putin retired and was replaced by someone else. Those Russian sanctions, you're probably going to have to add for that sixty or sixty-five dollars. You're probably going to have to add fifteen or twenty to come up with a similar uh, guess estimate of what. Oil will average over the next five years. Key thing I mentioned at the beginning is that if you're in the business, you want to run very low debt and you don't want to run hedges because the volatility, let's say we pick a new average price of 85 as compared to 65, up $20. The volatility around that 85 will be up 20, down 20. I mean, there'll just be an enormous amount of volatility. And the only way to take advantage of that volatility is to run unhedged. Natural gas and LNG, a bit different is price of natural gas is determined in the U.S. I mean, we, we our overall demand is about 100 Bs a day and 13 Bs of that. It goes out for LNG export and LNG prices uh, in Europe are very high. They're $50, $60 now and on a PTU basis, you multiply times six, that's like $350 oil. So they're very high and they're going to stay high because European governments and utilities will do, go into next winter, say by October, with absolute every bit of storage filled. So they will burn coal. They will try to create as much conservation as possible. They will keep the price of LNG high. There will not be a summer day. They'll just keep buying it be putting it in to LNG regas terminals, gasifying it, and then putting it into storage. They'll also continue to take whatever gas Russia is shipping and put that in storage so that they can get through next winter not being dependent on whether or not uh, Russia gas continues. A significant amount of the Russian gas coming to Europe comes through the Ukraine. If the, there isn't a ceasefire, that, that gas pipeline through the Ukraine is at risk. Either the Ukrainians blow it up themselves or the Russians blow it up. So you can't count on that. I, I think there's no way that the European Union or Germany certifies that second pipeline, Nord Stream 2. So, you know, Europe is going to be short gas. This is going to be very expensive for ratepayers, individual, individual families in Europe, and it's going to be very expensive for European business to have these high gas prices. The 
very difficult for the utilities because uh, in Europe, the utilities, like in France, the supply of electricity, uh, or, you know, a very high portion of the French market is electricity to France, and they're huge, but they're being asked by the French government to take most of the increase. Individuals and families and whatnot don't have to swallow the, the increase in uh, gas prices. And same thing, I think, will happen in Germany and the UK. <clears throat> For U.S., it would be great if you could somehow come up with another 10 or 15 or 20 B a day of LNG capacity, but it takes a long time to add capacity. It's very expensive and time-consuming. There are additional LNG trains that are being passed at Corpus Christi, Bolshenir plants. There's uh, a new venture just going into operation, and there's another one. There's Golden Pass, which is mostly guitar, a joint venture with Exxon. So there is about four bees a day, five bees a day that's actually being constructed now. But if over the next five years, there's five bees a day of additional LNG export capacity, there's probably, in terms of supply, the Marcellus is around 35% of our supply, 35, 36 bees a day. The Hainsville has been growing. It's around 15 or so. But the it's not clear that the gas, the associated gas coming from the Permian, which is 20 bees a day, won't take more, more or less all of that additional LNG capacity. So then the question becomes, what about the other components of gas demand? And the one that, that's tricky, I mean, residential commercial is very seasonal, but it's pretty flat, industrial is quite flat. One, for power, you'd think with increased use of the power that the more natural gas use, but as solar comes on and wind comes on, and this is all sold in the day ahead market, it's very hard, especially if gas is four dollars, which it is well, more than four dollars, four fifty next year. Very hard for a uh, combined cycle of natural gas, you know, base load natural gas plant to compete with wind and solar when the variable cost of wind and solar. I'm hopeful, I'm I'm kind of predicting Natural gas will average around 350, you know, some maybe 50 cents up and down volatility either way. Uh, but that depends on hanging on to that, that power demand of being at least flat. And that's something I think to uh, worry about. At 350 gas, the, Mar- the Marcellus companies and Hainesville companies, you know, Chesapeake has kind of more Hainesville than they do. They, they cash well a lot of money, but very important to hang in there at 350 and not revert to what it was in the second half of 2000, which was like $2 or 220 or 230. That extra buck or buck 30 is, is all kind of gravy to the natural gas companies. So that's very important. In terms of comment on interest rates, before we get on to some of the tech stuff, um, the Federal Reserve with the inflation, because you not only have energy pricing, you have Commodities, you have wheat, you have soybeans, you have uh, all these all these things are much higher. Both uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine are big wheat exporters, especially Ukraine. Uh, with you know inflation just built in, I don't see how the Federal Reserve uh, doesn't just let the nine trillion dollar balance sheet run off. And the chairman, in testimony, his press conferences, have made the point that the average maturity of all that paper is quite a lot shorter than it, than it was in 08. 
So it sounds as though if they just said, look, not only are we not going to buy any more securities, we're just going to let the maturities run off, that you might go from nine down to four and like where it was before the pandemic at four, you might get there in five years. A really good question is, then we'd be pulling all this liquidity that's kind of boosted stock prices and house prices and everything. You know, how is everything going to look without that liquidity? Now, the good news is with this amount of volatility, people with wealth uh, from in other areas of the world tend to pile into the U.S. market. Kenya bond isn't very attractive, you know, at 180 or 190 or wherever the heck it is. It may be that they'll pile into the U.S. stock market as a, as a way to, you know, not just make nothing on their money. But but it is, you know, if your favorite stock has come down some, you know, it's probably better to buy half rather than rather than buy your full position. It, it, you know, you may, you may see some more attractive valuation, more drawdown later. Um, with that, I've chewed through way too much time to try to put this half me and half Mike. The thing we'd like to focus on, given the Ukraine situation, is the impact of having a similar situation with China. We're not predicting it, but you know the Taiwanese have to notice that the U.S. and NATO did not do a no-fly zone in the Ukraine. I, I suspect most Taiwanese kind of assume that if China tried to, to do anything in an overt way, that <clears throat> whether it's naval planes or, or just U.S. planes would enforce kind of a no-fly zone over the Taiwan Strait, you know, that the, the president and the people advising him uh, really ruled that out and, and said publicly they ruled it out because they, they didn't want U.S. planes shooting down a Russian plane because Russia is a nuclear power. Well, China's a nuclear power. So, you know, if that was our stance with Taiwan, that certainly probably increases the, the I don't think it gets to a significant probability, whatever the probability is, is increased that something would happen there. And certainly if you're, especially if you're running a concentrated portfolio of just about a dozen stocks, you want to look at each of those stocks and see what would be the impact if we use the same same type of economic sanctions on China if they were, you know, became active from the military point of view on Taiwan, what would happen? Uh, I missed out on Apple when I started looking at Apple as a value stock because you know, I was trading at like a 15% free cash yield. Didn't buy it. It's not sour grapes. It's up eight or nine times since that time. But where would China, where would, where would Apple be if, you know, all our iPhones and whatnot are all made by Foxconn, by company incorporated in Taiwan as uh, the largest manufacturer employer in China. All those iPhones are made in China. What would happen there? And with that, I chewed up way too much of the time, and the rest of the time belongs to Michael. Okay. Well, let's first point out that this is a thought experiment, and if the situation is very different versus Ukraine. Obviously, Taiwan is a much more important member of the global trade and economy. Specifically, as Hunt mentioned, Apple it would be in a very interesting position because they're not only dependent on Foxconn for manufacturing inside of China, which is a Taiwanese company with huge operations inside China. I think it's probably the largest employer in China. They'd also be impacted by Taiwan Semiconductor, 
presumably what would happen is the people in Taiwan would flee and the talent that would be required to run those fabs would be gone. And it would not be, it's not like just turning on a light switch, getting them going again, and all of a sudden they're under the umbrella of China. Those people would leave and those plants would shut down. So that would affect Apple's ability to get chips. It would affect, in the event there were sanctions in the same way that we're applying towards Russia, then it may affect our ability to even get, or Apple's ability to even get uh, its phones and other products out of China. So it would be really bad for Apple. Um, it would be bad for AMD, who is also, they have a relationship with Taiwan Semiconductor, where Taiwan Semiconductor is essentially the sole supplier to that company. A lot of automotive firms are dependent on Taiwan Semiconductor chips. Basically, Taiwan Semiconductor touches a lot of the global economy. And if they were to have to shut down, it would be pretty painful everywhere. It would be a much larger impact. Although different than what we're experiencing with Russia. In a way, you might be able to say that some of the the pain would be less less bad in some ways, because right, right now the pains that are coming out of as a result of the Russian sanctions are causing increased energy prices and in- increased food prices, which causes inflation on the part of your average citizen has to pay, especially in Europe, has to pay more money for everything basic necessities. In the case of China, you could one could maybe argue that, at least from the U.S. perspective, it wouldn't be basic necessities that we would be, that would get more expensive. It would be more of the you know, kind of cyclical demand-driven consumer consumables that maybe you could live without. So uh, I, I haven't dug enough in to, to sort through that, but I, I do think there are some differences. I think at the end of the day, the amount of money involved is much larger. And Apple in particular, being the largest company in the world, is hopefully a very good position to broker any disagreements in a more peaceful manner than there otherwise would be. Yeah, we don't want to chase people out of their Apple stock. One of my oil and gas investor friends said this morning, without any prompting from me, that he was going to start to look at Intel alternative. I spent a fair amount of time looking at Intel. Mike has spent a lot of time looking at Intel. And the problem is that for them to catch up on the, what I call leading edge chips, is hard, and the other thing is that they will be spending all their, not the Taiwan Semiconductor doesn't have a pretty big CapEx budget too, but the, the history of computer chips is that there's overbuilding, and then when the supply of chips uh, exceeds the demand, there's lots of price discounting. So it, it, still, it still is hard to get comfortable with Intel at this point. And, <clears throat> and there also is the alternative of Samsung is doesn't have possibly the same capability as Taiwan Semiconductor does. But, you know, I think NVIDIA, for example, kind of splits its business between Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung. So they would have that as an have that as an 
alternative. Just one thing, and then we'll have Mike finish up. But in the beginning of the Russian invasion, there's a great deal of commentary on the Swiss system, whether or not Russian banks would be excluded from the Swiss system. And, you know, it took me a couple of days of reading different accounts to try to figure out what the Swiss system is. And I still may have it wrong. But I think what they do is notify each other uh, that wires have happened. And I think that because all banks belong to it, all significant sized banks, if BNP and France uh, is has been notified by JP Morgan that a $20 million wire is taking place, they can't really argue. In other words, that communication in the Swiss system is evidence that the wire is taking place. So the money isn't actually channeled through the Swiss system, but that notification is proof, you know, accepted proof by banks everywhere that's happened. So taking Russian banks, not all Russian banks, but you know, some significant size Russian banks out of the Swiss system was important. I think the thing that made the biggest difference to the capital markets is over <clears throat> the weekend, just it was weekend, it was like two weekends ago, uh, the U.S. and the Euro, uh, the central bank, the Euro bank, central bank in the European Union froze the assets of the Russian central bank outside of Russia. And that apparently had more of an impact. And basically, Putin himself has called it, you know, a declaration of war. I think people in the capital market were surprised to see that happen. And it just basically stopped transactions from happening. Now, go back to Mike for a couple of minutes more so we don't run over the 30 minutes. But, you know, just imagine the impact if the United States and Europe did something like that to China. Uh, I mean, how would commerce take place? It is... Uh, you know, I think every no one expected it, and I think we're still sorting through. You know, the impact on Russia, the impact on China. As Mike said, there's like a lot more interaction between China and the rest of the world than there is between Russia. So it's kind of kind of a impossible to uh, figure out. I think. Yeah. So really quickly, you you mentioned Samsung, which I think is a case. Just to be aware of on when comparing it to Intel, Samsung's behind on process technology relative to Taiwan Semiconductor. So Intel being able to get to the leading edge, I think, is going to be harder than you know than planned. Obviously, there's a lot of talent in Intel, and they ought to be able to get there. But I think should something difficult happen between the U.S. and China as a result of Taiwan, we would certainly hope that it comes after 2025, as that's when at least there's some manufacturing capacity here in the U.S. I should also mention that there's a lot more to the semiconductor market than fabs, and packaging is mostly done in China. So uh, it goes well beyond that. But it's a complex problem. It's a very complex and globally interconnected industry. I think it's probably why it's very interesting to think uh, about from this perspective. Everyone stay healthy. 
promise that Mike and I will be much more upbeat next Wednesday. We'll stop this. You know, something might happen to Taiwan and China. Try to get on, get on with uh, the rest of our commercial lives. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Thank mm-hmm. you.